Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. This is Connor. I am not here with Pete today. I'm here with the Mary Cat to my Constance. (laughs) (laughs) I take offense to that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, we can can change at the end. We can decide if we want to switch characters, but that was off the cuff that I did that. Um, it's true that you're actually you're older than me, so you know maybe you should be Constance and I should be Mary Cat, or maybe neither of us is Mary Cat. I don't know. But if you're a big fan of the book we're about to discuss, then you probably already know what it is. Um, we're here to discuss Shirley Jackson's classic, short, strange, creepy novel called "We Have Always Lived in the Castle," mm-hmm. um, and we'll, we'll get into like more details of what it's about. I think that like I have, I have some thoughts about this. You could it's you could call it sort of a gothic haunted house narrative. Mm-hmm. You could call it a very early example of weird fiction. Um, I would say at least like it. I think so. It, it, yeah. It falls under in a lot of different categories and we'll get into that. Um, but first, I mean, I, I guess actually before I throw a question to you, I will just say what it's about. Like it's set in this novel came out in the early sixties. was one of the last things that Shirley Jackson published before her sadly fairly early death. Um, it's set in kind of a timeless, I, I take it to be American town, mm-hmm. uh, in the first half of the 20th century. Um, and it's kind of every town in USA with a dark twist and it's narrated by this girl called, um, Mary Cat Blackwood. And she lives with her sister, Constance Blackwood and uncle Julian Blackwood in the Blackwood house. That's one of the big prominent houses that looms over the town, uh, over the village and there's <laughs> how to even describe this. Let's just say that the Blackwoods are this <laughs> it, kind of weird malign family. Yeah, in town. It's, it's like a dynasty, but it's it's a decaying dynasty. Yeah. Decay, uh, death, um, rot. All of these are themes in it. And, and, and interestingly, like while it's about decay, it's also like a very OCD book about mm-hmm. like two people that are maniacally fighting against entropy in all aspects of their lives and incredibly mm-hmm. exacting and tidy and organized, um, even as everything decays around them, which is an interesting, a really interesting part of the book. But yeah, like, let's just say that this family is not liked in the town. That creates some tension. Uh, a cousin arrives, Charles Blackwood, who creates problems. Um, and there's a lot of backstory. There's, there's a novel's worth of backstory going into yep. this. And it's a short, it's a short story. It's a short novel. It's a very strange novel. Because it's narrated by Mary Cat, who is unreliable is kind of the wrong word. She is just deeply strange. Yeah. And you don't want to trust her or anyone else in the story. I'll stop rambling um, <laughs> and let Emma talk a little bit and say, Emma, you recommended this to me before I actually read it a while back. Um, tell us a little bit about your relationship with Shirley Jackson and like kind of how you first read this book and how you come to this. 
Uh, let's see. I think I first read it probably in college. So it, it had been a while since I'd read it. And it, it I, it's one of those books that just really holds up really well. It's very timeless. It doesn't really, like, it could take place, you know, it, it, it has a very modern feel to it, which I think most of Shirley Jackson's stuff does. Like, I think her writing is very timeless. Um, it, it feel like the way that she writes horror is a very modern way. Um, and I think that's part of the reason that she's sort of endured as a popular writer. Um, but you, you were writing sort of something that reminded me of these two people who are stuck in this house, like sort of unable to leave. And what I love is that it, they're not, not able to leave because of anything that's physically stopping them, but just because of themselves, because they're imprisoning themselves. Yeah. Um, and, and actually early drafts of my current project, you're right. Once I actually, uh, went back, once I finally read this, mm -hmm. the early versions of my current project did have a lot like just tonally in common with us because it was a single narrator who mm -hmm. you could tell was trying to keep things under control, but there was a lot welling up in the background and, and underneath, which is what's going on here. Um, yeah. And I also want to say you launched into the the horror elements of this, which of mm -hmm. course Shirley Jackson is most famous for horror. I think Haunting of Hill House is probably her most yeah, for sure. widely known work. And it's been a movie multiple times and a TV mm -hmm. show and a very famous book. Um, this one is probably more of a literary darling than Haunting of Hill House is. Yeah, um, I, I think so. Although, I mean, Hill House has, anytime you take like a writing class, they usually talk about the, the opening paragraph of Hill House, which is just like the classic um, opening and, and usually given as like a, a, you know, the perfect opening paragraph. But yeah, I, I, I like this book a lot. Now that's an interesting teaser. Cause I have not read Hill House and in my writing classes, at least it hasn't come up, but I'm thinking really? at some point, well, at some point we're going to have to do Hill House and have you on to discuss yeah. it again. This is teaser for so, a future episode. Well, you, you must've heard it. It's the, oh, hold on, let me look it up. It's um, the no life organism can continue for, for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even Larks and Katie Dids are supposed by some to dream. Oh, yeah. It's kind of this Lovecraftian homage. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's you know, it's usually given as like, oh, it's, you know, a really famous opening paragraph. But um, yeah, but I, I don't know. There's just, We Have Always Lived in the Castle is just very, it's very weird. And I like that it is, it is horror, but there's nothing actually supernatural that happens in it other than sort of what we imagine to happen in it. Yeah, and I, I want to dive it deeper into that. I, I did a very bad job opening this episode because I was making fun of you about the Constance Mary Cat <laughs> thing. And I, I, the reason I brought up horror is because I did not introduce you properly. Oh, right. um, for people who don't know who you are, you've been <laughs> on the show before, but this is Emma Berquist, who is a horror writer, uh, mostly for YA. And yep. her two novels that are out are called Missing Presumed Dead and Devils Unto Dust. Um, definitely go get her work and check it out. We have also previous interviews with her, um, one of which is about her books in our back catalog. But yeah, Emma, thanks for coming on the show, despite this disjointed <laughs> structure. Uh, I feel like this disorienting, weird structure that I'm doing for this episode is kind of suited to the book, though. So Yeah, no, it was definitely intentional. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're, you, you make a great point about like... Uh, there's just so... It's so hard to tell precisely what has happened in this novel. Mm -hmm. Very little is firmly nailed down for us. And part of that's just because Mary Cat is, again, I hate the word unreliable because all narrators are unreliable. Yeah. I don't take any narrator at their word, but like she is deeply. Yeah. She, and there, there's to, something quite wrong with her. Yeah. And in fact, 
uh, spoilers, spoilers are coming up in this episode. Um, we find out that there is a lot, a lot wrong with Mary Cat, mm-hmm. and that really her pathologies, whatever they may be, are kind of the impetus for why things are the way they are in that in that house. Um, but I'm just going to read a little bit from the opening uh, to give people a sense of, of the tone of this novel. So here's page one. My name is Mary Catherine Blackwood. I am 18 years old, and I live with my sister Constance. I have often thought that with any luck at all, I could have been born a werewolf because the two middle fingers on both my hands are the same length. But I've had to be content with what I had. I dislike washing myself and dogs and noise. I like my sister Constance and Richard Plantagenet and Amanita Phalloides, the death cat mushroom. Everyone else in my family is dead. Uh, I mean, again, so, another great opening. It's a great opening. Yeah. It, it foreshadows and backshadows, like it foreshadows things mm-hmm. that will happen. It backshadows things that mm-hmm. have happened. Like again, yes, the most of the family, uh, their parents, um, Uncle Julian's wife, mm-hmm. at least those three, if not others, are uh, dead. Younger brother. Younger brother. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, there was a large, there was a large sprawling multi-generational Blackwood family. Uh, and now it's just Constance Mary Cat and old Uncle Julian who is senile, does not remember things, is disoriented, and is trying to write the definitive book about that day, which is both a great sort of joke about the writing process by Shirley Jackson, but also, <laughs> like, not only can he not organize information in his own mind about that day, there's, like, no way for us as the readers to sort of track back and, and establish the truth because every source of information we have is, is unreliable. And I will be clear about this. This is one of these novels which we sometimes run into where every single character is in some way dislikable and probably the most likable is poor senile Uncle Julian. Is that a fair statement, Emma? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think Constance is is likable in a very sort of passive way. I mean, I like Constance, but mm-hmm. also it must be said, Constance, um, you know, she tolerates and kind of lets in Charles Blackwood, who's the big source of all of right. the problems during the action of the book. And, and that's really on her, I would say. <laughs> Yeah, no, they're 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 all um, they're all aspects of them that are either deeply unlikable or weird or just confusing. Yeah, and and so it's one of the interesting moves is like the first chapter, which I read the opening of, is Mary Cat doing her like weekly grocery run in the village, and almost everyone is cruel to her or harassing mm-hmm. her in various ways. There's one diner uh, proprietor who like tolerates her and gives her coffee. But she can't, she uh, nor her sister cannot, they can't go into the village without being bothered by the townsfolk who hate them. And I think that, that you know, as readers, we're trained to read that first chapter and have sympathy for the right. Blackwoods, right? We are immediately like, oh, this poor, this poor girl who's, you know, taking the time to narrate this book to us. Everyone is so mean to her. These horrible people. What if, you know, and look, I'm not saying that the, the village folk definitely don't absolve themselves in the mm-hmm. course of this story. But like... <laughs> We come to see why they dislike the Blackwoods, yeah, right? Yeah, and I, I think we would probably have even more sympathy for them if Mary Cat didn't constantly think about like hurting people that were mean to her and like wishing they were all dead and that she could walk over their bodies, that kind of thing. So it's not this like, oh, poor girl, they're being so mean to her and she's so pure. It's like I hate these people and they hate me. Yeah, and when I say this is an OCD book, I say that as someone with OCD, and I don't. Mm-hmm know what Shirley Jackson's diagnoses may have been. It would it would not surprise me at all if she had OCD because these characters have um, a ton of rituals. Mm-hmm. They have a ton of fixations. They're always trying to fight against entropy 
through these elaborate practices and also intrusive thoughts. Yeah. Like Constance, um, I'm sorry, Mary Cat has constant intrusive thoughts, as you said, about violence. These are all like just sort of frontline OCD symptoms. Um, well, I think this is one of her most autobiographical books because um, she, she did have problems with like anxiety and depression. And I know towards the end of her life, she was increasingly agoraphobic. So I think a lot of what she was writing came from her own experiences. And I think she also like, she didn't really like the town where she was living. They were, she was sort of an outcast and, you know, she was also trapped in an unhappy marriage. Like a lot of what's going on in this book is things that were going on in her own life. Yeah. And I I find that quite plausible. Mm -hmm. Um, just based like it, it has it has sort of lived in definitely a lived in quality here. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, well, one point that you raised as a YA writer that that kind of ties into a conversation we were having about the current YA market, which we might get mm-hmm. into. But your point was, I think, a really crucial one here, which is that as as Mary Cat announces very early on, she's 18 years old in the action of the right. story. And she acts somewhere in the range of like 11 to maybe yeah. maxing out at 14. But I would say she's probably about 12. Yeah, 12. Um, and and it, it takes you just uh, like a few pages to kind of figure out like, oh, this, this is not the voice of like an 18 year old. That certainly isn't the way that you would write a YA protagonist. Um, and then you figure out that it was six years ago that her family died. And she's just stuck in that in that age. She has this really active fantasy life, which is not something that you would really see in young adult. You would see it in middle grade because she's constant. She, she does very weird things. You know, she has these like rituals. She'll, she'll bury things in the yard for protection or nail things to trees, just stuff that only makes sense in her head. And she, she's not really entirely sure what's real and what's not. So we're not entirely sure what's real and what's not. Yeah, absolutely. So she has these very childish behaviors mm-hmm. um, around like, you know, collecting marbles and burying them in the mud and like mm-hmm. believing in these powerful words. Although I will say that, again, the, the story brings into question nothing that is clearly supernatural happens, but we can't rule out supernatural influences. Right. And there are moments where the story teases us with the possibility that some of these people might be ghosts or mm-hmm. And she's always calling Charles Blackwood, her enemy, a ghost, even though like. Or, yeah, or a demon. And then at one point, Julian says that Maricat's dead and she's a ghost. And it's like, we it just again, like everyone is sort of unreliable in this book. Right. And the point, I think, insofar as there is one, is that is the way that um, reality bleeds into fantasy for a certain mm-hmm. type of person. And again, you associate that with younger, with children. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, with Maricat, I think we're being asked to accept that she has arrested herself or been arrested at the age of 12, which is mm-hmm. when the rest of the family died. And she and Constance go to great lengths to try to keep things going as they have been in lieu of those family members being there. They have this incredible uh, thing they do. They, they, they do a tremendous amount of preserving and canning mm-hmm. of food and, and they stack it up in the basement. And there are generations of canned food by previous Blackwood women that they don't want to touch. Right. That's There's not allowed this- to be touched. They can only they can only eat the food that they've preserved themselves. Yeah, and it must it must keep accumulating, which is an interesting um, mm-hmm. metaphor for sort of the the pointless accumulation of capital, one might say, and, and other things. But <laughs> yeah, um, and there's this interesting. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Where they where they feed off one another? You know, they they in, sort of enable one another to to keep doing the strange things that they're doing. Yeah, so much of their dialogue is just sort of reiterating what must be done in this kind of ritual mm-hmm. edifice they've built for themselves. There's all these exchanges like, oh, it's Helen's Clark's, you know, it's Helen Clark's day when Helen Clark, mm-hmm. one of the few people who likes them, 
sort of comes and visits and yeah. we, we must do these things on Helen Clark's day. And they're constantly, they, they already know it because they've been living these rituals before, but they have to say it to each other. Like so much of their interaction mm-hmm. is like this act of, of mutual self narration um, around what must be done to sort of maintain the aura of their lives. And, and again, it's, it's not strictly supernatural, but it is very much a haunted aura in like the strictest sense because they're haunted by the deaths of the family members who, spoiler alert, <laughs> the family members who were, we find out, killed by Mary Cat. Mm-hmm. And we don't actually find out what her motives were. I think reading this as contemporary readers, our first move is to say, well, she must have been being abused in some way. Right. Um, and I, I don't, we don't really get any hints of that. Um, the only time Mary Cat really talks about her family is is when she's imagining them. And she's imagining them talking about how great she is. So I, I don't see, I don't know. I think that you can certainly make up a backstory of that, but the the reason that we mostly have is that she was mad that she got sent to bed without dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And I mean, it, yeah, I, I, I went down this hole. So obviously I'm in New Zealand and I don't know if you're familiar with the movie heavenly creatures. I'm not. Okay, so this was like one of Peter Jackson's earlier films, and it's based on what was and and probably is still like the most famous murder case in New Zealand, which was the Parker Holm case. And it took place in 1954. So it was actually like right around the time she was writing this. And it was these two girls who became incredibly close. And then they had this they had this very active fantasy life, like they created their own world and it was called like the the fourth estate or something like that or the fourth world and they said that they reached nirvana and they had created their own gods and their parents were getting like sort of increasingly worried about how close they were and how strange they were being and one of them um was supposed to move away and they decided that in order to stop this from happening they would kill this girl's mother and they did <laughs> and yeah, no, I mean, and, and it was, you know, they were, uh, I want to say like 15, 16. And so it was like this huge thing where there were these two young girls. And of course it was in the 50s. So it was like, oh, maybe they're lesbians. But it was mostly like, how could two young, seemingly well-adjusted, bright young girls kill this woman with like a, a brick in a sock <laughs> and, and think that this was going to be sort of the way to stop them from from having to break up their friendship. And there was, it it, it reminded me of that. And there was the sense that they were just feeding off one another and this very active fantasy life that allows you to disassociate yourself from reality. Yeah. And I think that's a perfect parallel, actually. I think that that is a version of what Constance and Mary Cat are enacting. And I love that you pull out the fifties. Like we read, we read this book now in an era of awareness of mental Mm -hmm. pathologies. And we're like, okay, this is an OCD book. Yeah. Um, we can detect the specific pathological patterns that are in play here. And that's and that to me is a lot of what the book's about. And you made the 50s move, which I think is great as saying, oh, well, adjusted girls. Like, every, yeah, exactly. It's so, like, well, yeah. you know, they're but they're from good families, you know, and it but you see this pop up now and then. And I mean, like even recently, like I, I went down a hole with like, oh, the Slenderman case. It's like there's this weird sense that like young girls, especially for some reason, get caught up in these these fantasies and and are not able to differentiate, you know, what's real for them and then what's a story. Oh, sounds like these, uh, fertile, yeah. fertile ground for you as a YA writer. Although, as you alluded earlier, for those who don't follow these things, <laughs> I'm, what I'm learning is that YA is, if 
correct me if I'm wrong, Anna, but based on our discussion recently, it sounds mm-hmm. like YA increasingly means teen protagonists written for adults. Yes, it, mean, it means like a 17-year-old that has the sort of mental capacity and experience of a 25-year-old. Right, and if you want to yeah. write a 14-year-old who acts like a 14-year-old, that's middle grade now. Oh, yeah, sorry. There's Well, no, it's not middle grade. There's just not a place for that. There, I mean, it's nothing. It's like, oh, sorry, we can't publish this. It's That's not... <laughs> Yeah. So wait, is middle grade now a twelve year old acts like a twelve year old? Yeah, it's it's yeah, no, middle grade is still like you're you're it's like sort of one step up from chapter books. It's yeah, about about twelve years, thirteen maybe pushing it. Um but yeah, like certainly before high school and then once you get to the high school age range, then it's like, yeah, people who are just like inc- I don't know, like brilliant uh assassins or scientists or something. It's like, what? What is happening? This is, this is a 17-year-old. So the the point is, the realistic 16-year-old who's written for 16-year-olds is in danger of extinction right now. Yeah, I mean, it really is. It doesn't really... Because people are looking for things with crossover appeal, so they want um, YA that um, sort of adults who are, you know, in their early 20s can read and identify with, but that's, that's just, that's adult, you know, or that's their a different, early, early 30s, early 30s, 40s, 30s. look, I don't, yeah, yeah, you know, which is, which is fine. Like I, I have absolutely no problem with adults reading YA. I mean, I read YA because I write it and I want to know, you know, what's out there, but you need to understand that it's not written for you and you need to not complain that characters are acting like teenagers if you're reading a book with a teenage protagonist. That seems like a pretty good basic schema. Yeah, I mean, last time we had you on the show, we discussed one of my favorite stories about early adolescent characters, which mm-hmm. is um, Let the Right One In. Yes. Where yeah. you have a vampire who, you know, in, in bodily she seems to be 13, but of course she's much mm-hmm. older, so she acts differently, right? Right. Although she has some of the vulnerability of, well, I, I, I shouldn't say of a child, just of a person, but like yeah. she's she's interesting. She's unusual. And then you have Oscar who actually does act like a 13-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things that makes that story so great. And I think what this story is strange, obviously, because you have an 18 year old who desperately wants either desperately wants to be 12 or in essence is 12 emotionally. Mm -hmm. Um, and you have a sense that like, that is of course, partly due to trauma, some, some, some unspoken trauma that we do not unearth in the course of the narrative. And to be Mm -hmm. clear, we don't have the evidence to infer it. There's no suggestion that she's been, you know, profoundly traumatized by her family prior to killing them. Obviously some bad things happen to her in the course of the story, which could feel, which could, you know, be traumatic, but like it it's, I think it's meant to be a mystery. And also the the key point here is whatever may have caused her to, to be arrested at that age, she actively participates in that freezing of time. And I wrote a short essay for my class recently, because we had to write about this for my uh, class in writing school. And I talked about how she and her sister live in a perpetual today they're mm-hmm. always they're always marking down what the today is, and of course, like time moves, but it's it's so demarcated that it it it, it doesn't it doesn't move any more than it has to, and it's always about like defining what the day must be and then enacting it. Right. Um, this is the cleaning day, or on Thursdays I go to town, and when that pattern is disrupted by Charles, that's when everything starts to break apart. Yeah, exactly. And you know the the Charles arc happens. Um, they find a solution to it, sort of, and they end up living in the kind of ruined wreckage of this house, but still uh, drinking off clean teacups. I mean, it's weird. The yeah. story gets weirder and weirder as it goes on. I I think, um, yeah, it's it's such a it's such a strange. I mean, there's so many strange things going on here. Like mm-hmm. one thing about the, to the point about 
Mary Cat being like 12 mentally, like she has zero arrows, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's like no erotic interest on her part or sexuality of any kind that we hear about. Constance does not like Constance doesn't seem to have any of those interests either, despite being, I think, 28. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's so. very much like a like a mother child relationship where. Um, oh wait, hold on, sorry, something just popped up. Um, where yeah, she's she's like um, Maricat's mother, so she she just wants to take care of her. She doesn't necessarily want um, any kind of relationship of her own, other than than that mother and child relationship. Right, and she's sort of like feels guilted. This is actually quite emotionally realistic. She feels sort of guilted into believing that she should get back out into the town. She's been told that, um, Mm -hmm. that she should behave more normally because she's kind of moving past marriageable age or whatever. So when Charles Blackwood shows up, there's kind of suggestion that like he might try to kind of maliciously cynically marry her because he wants their Mm -hmm. money. Um, That never materializes fully though. He does get various things out of them, but it's not, even then, there's not much of a sexual charge in the relationship, whether it's, yeah, like, no. it's just it's it's purely transactional and sort of like this sort of hollow acting out of what one, like there's an attempt that gets made, I guess, to sort of act out what you think your social role should be. And then it gets rolled back and the sisters end up where they were before, which is they've created this this strange, unnerving role for themselves and they're going to keep doing mm-hmm. it. And also, I should say that, you know, at, at one point, again, spoilers, the townspeople like. The house catches on fire. That kind of ends the Charles Blackwood arc because it leads to him sort of vacating this weird, dangerous house. But in the midst of that, the townspeople come to put the fire out. But then they riot and like loot the yeah, house, just smash everything, and all the all these things that they've been taking care of for so long and treasuring are just destroyed. Yeah, but and then the townspeople, as if to sort of reaffirm, so that's like the townspeople fully rejecting these sisters. Mm-hmm. But then, as if to sort of affirm finally that the role the sisters created for themselves was correct. The townspeople spend the rest of the narrative leaving these like Sunday dinners on the porch for the sisters as like an apology. Mm-hmm. And they keep doing it over and over and over again. They, they become inaugurated into this ritual. Yeah. And part of it is guilt. And then part of it is fear because they, they have, the, you know, they cast this very long shadow over the town. And like, are they are they witches? They're, you know, like children dare one another to like get close to the house. And then there was, there was one part where one of the, the parents was like worried that the kid got too close and then, and then like left a, a piece of bread or something. It was like, sorry, he didn't mean it. Yeah. Like they're afraid <laughs> of some sort of retaliation. In, in, in many ways, this is the story of the formation of like the weird house that exists. Yeah. And every yeah, time uh, how, that you're not yeah. supposed to go near. And it's like, Oh, that's all. where the, the two, you know, Oh, crazy old women live, you know, don't, don't get close <laughs> to the house. And yeah. meanwhile, you know, they're afraid of the town and they're barricading themselves inside. Right. So it's, it's yeah, it's God, the more I talk about this book. I like this book more the more that I discuss it, honestly. Yeah, it's, it it's a really fun book. Yeah. And, it, you know, you've got this this really interesting sort of like Grey Gardens ending where they're just these two people unable to to leave. And th- the way that they play off one another. So like J- Jackson actually described them as two halves of the same person. And I think uh, you can kind of see that. And I think they were probably representative of like her, her, the two halves of, of herself because, you know, she had um, a mother who was like very overbearing and, and constantly criticizing her for like her weight and her appearance, her lifestyle being too much of a tomboy. And that's sort of like the Maricat part. And then there's the constant part, which is like someone who's the perfect housewife and mother because really all Constance does is like cook 
and clean. And like, that's what she loves to do. She loves cooking. And when she gets that like disrupted, she gets really upset. It's like, she doesn't know what to do. Like she makes almost no decisions in this book. She's completely passive. And, and, and all of the plot is really driven by either Maricat or by Charles. Yeah. Yeah. And they really cannot exist without one another because Constance needs to take care of someone and Maricat needs someone to take care of her. Yeah, totally. And I think one of the interesting things that you're sort of raising in my mind by describing that is like, these are two kind of fascinating, in certain ways, powerful, uh, certainly self-determined in the end, female characters who do not fit any of our current archetypes of like, these are not kick-ass women, right? Right, right. Like when the townspeople loot their house, they just kind of run off into the trees and hide because they're not going to like, you know... They're not going right, to pull yeah. a Captain Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in a lot of ways, it's it's sort of like this um, sort of that classic trapped 1950s housewife kind of thing where it's like, oh, you, you have to give up your own life to to for, for your husband, but there's that part of you that resists. There's like this yellow wallpaper thing kind of going on, um, but but then split into two actual characters as opposed to one. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think... Um this is an opportune moment to kind of to make a shift towards something that I've been thinking about a lot. I think probably the next installment of my newsletter, go sign up for my newsletter if you haven't. <laughs> um, it's uh, it is going to be about just a little bit talking about this book and, and also about Parasite mm-hmm. um, because this is an old, this is over 50 years old at this point. Um, it's a, you know, it's a haunted house narrative. We could use my favorite word, gothic. You don't have to use mm-hmm. that, that word, but like it is about being haunted in a specific place. Um, and there's been a resurgence of the gothic and of the haunted house, or at least the very mm-hmm. laden house. And you see this in, in narratives like Parasite. Um, you see it in Knives Out. So there's some big, like, big mass market hits on the screen that are doing this. And I'm sure it's happening also in literature in ways that I'm not exploring as much. But, like, this harkens back to this is an, this is an older version of that. And, of course, Jackson was big on haunted houses because Haunting of Hill House is her mm-hmm. most famous story. Um, Emma, I mean, I know you always have interesting thoughts about this. But, like, I guess I want to frame this in terms of you look at this as a haunted house narrative. We've already broken it down pretty significantly. Um, what do you think it, it has to show us about like kind of where we are now with haunted house narratives or like how things have shifted? I know that's a very broad question, but I'm just trying to like get a sense of how to use this book in our current milieu, you know? I mean, I think you can really see the the influence that Jackson has on on modern horror. There are well, like I said, like this book still feels really modern. Like you don't read it and and it doesn't feel like it was written in the 50s. Like it feels like it, it could be something that was re- written recently. If you look at um, something like uh, Little Stranger, which is sort of, uh, I think that was written, what, just, just a few years ago, the, the Sarah Walker book. Yeah. And there are things here that I think make it still timely. Like for one, it's actually pretty funny. There's a lot of... Not necessarily like the characters, but a lot of the situations are are just so ridiculous. Like when Charles is getting upset that he keeps finding things buried around and just the situation of this guy being like, what the hell is going on in this house? Like, why is this 18 year old running around burying stacks of money? And then Gonsens <laughs> is just like, oh, that's just Maricat. And he's like tearing out his hair, like losing his mind. Like what is happening in this house? You know, there's like a lot of absurd situations. Um and I think that, especially with horror movies now, when you look at things like um, 
get out or hereditary that a lot of what Jackson is doing um, sort of has been a big influence because it's the idea that you're not that yes, maybe you're haunted by ghosts, but you're really haunted by the past and by your family. And maybe you're imprisoned in a house, but what's really imprisoning you is is your mind and your trauma and the idea of taking things that are scary and making them much more personal. Ah, okay. That's interesting. I think that's a great point. Like now we've kind of, it's so naturalized now that we don't even question it, that like horror mm-hmm. is really about, really about trauma. Right. 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 And I think she really started that because, you know, Hill House, it's not so much the ghost in the house. It's the the ghost of this girl's past and her, you know, her horrible childhood there. And, you know, this isn't supernatural, but they're they're still trapped in this house by their trauma. Yeah, I think that's a great read. And that's that's an interesting in trauma. But again, like it. I think one reason this book is endured is because it is so not straightforward. I think this is a great mm-hmm. lesson for contemporary writers. Like this book takes a lot of risks. One of the risks of mm-hmm. course is to never fully explain Mary Kat's motive. Um, that is, and I think that like in the, in the current publishing landscape, which both Emma and I have had various frustrations mm-hmm. with like recently, like <laughs> you would be getting asked that question. It's like, well, you know, right. what the like, hell? Well, like, why, <laughs> what, you know, yeah. What is the reason? And, and I think that, when you over explain something and again, like particularly in horror, like you, you take all the tension away when you give a reason. Like I really don't like, like if you look at someone like Michael Myers, he's scary because you don't know why he's killing. There is no motive. And when you try and give him a motive, it just, it just doesn't work. It makes it stupid. You know, it's like, Oh, well it's because he, he had a bad relationship with his mother or something. It's like, what? That doesn't make any, like, no, nobody wants that. We just want a big, scary monster that you can put your own fears onto. Yeah. And I think especially in our current moment, motives mm-hmm. are almost always overdetermined. By overdetermined, I simply mean, like, if you are, if you want to sort of pitch and package a product, a, a project in any narrative media, like, there needs to be something in its DNA in most cases that's like, all right, well, here's a familiar political or social issue that, you know, ties into why this character is doing the things they're doing, right? Like, yeah. it's so it's so natural to us now. It, it's been so naturalized that, like, we don't even question it. But it's like, again, Jackson is rejecting that profoundly. This is right. not a book that – this book will not get – will not yield to you a an easy political reading. You could, you could really – you could work to, like, turn it into that. But I don't think there, – there's nothing in the, in the text itself that, like – is going to point you down that path. Whereas now it would right. have to be again, like abuse. It would have to somehow, or mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm just spitballing here. Like it's tied to like the corporate nefariousness of her father. Where did the money come from? Like whatever, you know, but yeah. And, but the thing, you know, it, it doesn't, that wouldn't change the story. It's like an easy answer would not make anything different. It would only give you sort of something uh, comforting and I think Jackson isn't really interested in, in comforting you or making something easy. Yeah, and it would it would simplify the sort of the complex strangeness of this book because it's a book that when you get to the end, it's, you know, my edition, I have the vintage recently issued like vintage paperback. In my edition, it's only 140 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, you get to the end and you're like, wait, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's like a 400 page version of this, which would give you the backstory on the family, would like the sort of... There would be like the end of the first act might be Mary Cat killing her parents and the end of mm-hmm. the second act. But like 
instead, the the sort of moment in significant time, I think that, that it's always been interesting with this idea of like, you know, stories are located in significant time. You're not just getting, mm-hmm. you're not getting the most banal, like few days of this character's life. So what is significant about it? And I think that this, this novel makes an interesting move because there is a significant, like the significant thing that happened is, is that Charles Blackwood arrives and disrupts their lives Causes like that didn't really directly cause the fire. I think did Mary Cat set the fire? Yeah, she sets the fire. Yeah, so she's yeah she's the real <laughs> yeah. she's the real agent in all of this, right? But like Charles Blackwood arrives, which leads Mary Cat to set the fire, which leads to this riot, and then Uncle Julian, bless his soul, uh, passes mm-hmm. away in the midst of all that. And the thing so, is, we never we never really know what happens to him. It's just that he like they run away and then they find out that that he died and it's like did he die in the fire did he die of like heart failure did charles kill him we we really don't know what happened he's just there and then he's gone well back then they used to say he died of old age so right (laughs) (laughs) which he did i mean probably but like it but you're right i mean it's another unexplained it's just a thing that happens and i guess the point that i'm making is that significant action happens so it's not as if we've just gotten a random snapshot of the arc of these women's lives but like the pressure from the characters is to erase the significance of the time because what they want to do is go back to this kind of timeless, unceasing, rhythmic set of rituals they have. Right. And that is challenge, but they circle back to it. And it's like the characters themselves, uh, they don't, you know, I mean, I'm always interested in when characters want to be in a certain kind of narrative and are sort of self-conscious about it. I don't know that, that Mary Cat wants to be in a narrative. She wants to be in a universe or an aura, which is a kind of a different thing than wanting to be in a narrative, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. She, she, instead of, you know, telling us through her narration that they're, they're happy. She says, she, she speaks to constant and just says like, we're very happy. We're going to be very happy. Yeah. There's a tremendous amount of self narration in here. And I'm suggesting that it's in a sense, almost anti-narrative because it like, it's like we're going to narrate things so firmly that we can like flatten all of the, you know, all of the emotional textures, all of the significant events, all of these things that comprise a narrative. We can defeat it with the right kind of self-narration. I'm getting very like conceptual here, but I think it's really <laughs> I don't know. I think it's really interesting. I mean, there's a reason that this book has endured the way that it has um, yeah. and it is still puzzling and beguiling to us. Um, I think. You know, I've I've probably said most of what I have to say about it. Were there other things that you wanted to throw in there? Um, no, I I think that's it. I just yeah, I just I just think it's um a really enduring book. Um, and yeah, and the fact that we can't have this kind of discussion about it, you know, in 2020, it just I think Jackson's a phenomenal writer, and uh, her yeah, her stuff is still really relevant. Yeah. And I'm thinking that we've already suggested we might have you on to do Haunting of Hill House sometime. Would that be fun? That would be very fun. I would love to do that. Cool. And now I should uh, do penance for my earlier sins of not properly (laughs) introducing you and give you a chance to, if you'd like to at greater length, uh, plug your books, talk about what you're working on, that kind of thing. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, sure. So I have two. I have two books. Um, and the first one is Devils Unto Dust, and that is a zombie western. And then the second one is Missing Presumed Dead, and that is a sort of um, ghost story murder mystery. And right now I have, let's see, I just finished writing sort of um, what I'm calling my YA into thin air because I really like survival stories. And um, yeah, I know I'm, I'm, I got like 
way, way too into watching mountaineering disaster documentaries. Um, and next up, I'm going to do a slasher. That's the plan. Wow. Yeah. Emma is prolific. She she likes to aw shucks her way through this, but <laughs> she gets a lot done down there in New Zealand. Um, it's it's easier to get running done when you have free health care, though. And you it on. is. Yeah. Not as many distractions, you know. Apparently, we don't have, like, you know, appliances. <laughs> that appliance thing earlier today. Oh, man. God, like, you should all definitely what? follow. You should all follow Emma on Twitter, by the way, because she's a great one of my favorite follows. Uh, one of my, my best Twitter buddies. Um, yeah, I, oh, I had something I wanted to throw out there. Oh, I was going to make fun of you a little bit and say that, like, I love that your first book, Devils Unto Dust, has a wonderfully unique title. And then your second one has a completely ungoogleable title. Uh, <laughs> missing Presumed Dead. Can't Google it. No, look, nobody likes my titles. I come up with these amazing titles and then my agent and editor are just like, yeah, no, this is bad. You're bad at this. I have never, <laughs> I have never pitched a book that has kept its title. So I just don't bother anymore. I just, I just call it, you know, like work in progress. <laughs> you call it YA into thin air, which is a compelling yeah. concept. I'm not going to well, I think it's a good pitch. <laughs> yeah. As you can tell, Emma and I share some of our frustrations about the publishing industry. <laughs> I will, I will spare you some of my kvetching right now. I think, I think this is probably a good place to leave it. Um, I think so. Yeah. I think we covered everything. Yeah. Well, Emma, thanks so much. I'm sure we're going to have you back. Uh, everyone should follow Emma on Twitter and you should go buy her books right now. <laughs> well, I mean, we all need something to do, right? Got to read. Got it. We all need reading right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Emma, thank you so much. And thanks, everyone. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Thanks.